Today's reading is Romans 7, 14 through 25. It can be found on the page 1042 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not want to do do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, in mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. The word of the Lord. Can you join me in prayer? Gracious God, as we come into this room from different places, maybe places of struggle or places of ease and comfort. Maybe we come from a place of great faith or a place of lots of doubt and questions and uncertainty or maybe even suffering. All these different places we come, we ask and invite you to to really see us and meet us here. You see all of us in all of our beauty and our fragmentation in our mess, and in our glory. And we, all of us, are more broken and frail and fragmented than we want other people to know. And we have courage right now to to listen to you and to your voice because you meet that mess and that fragmentation with grace. You always move towards us with grace. And we enter now into listening to this story of grace from your scriptures where you have shown us that. And we pray that you show us one more time today in a way that's transformative for each of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I I do kind of like the challenge that this new space affords too. I'm just, you know, as as we're setting up today and working and doing this, I'm realizing all these cool new things like... uh, I can literally see how good my preaching is with respect to raising the dead. As I look out there and see all the graves over there. You know, a lot of, a lot of times I've preached and I've seen some of you look pretty dead, you know, and I've wondered, <laughs> wondered you know, do I gotta, what do I got to do here to wake you up? So, so those were just, actually that was the training wheels for today and for this, this challenge across the street. Can't wait for Easter. 
I was talking the other day that we should, we should actually, um, at some point in a sermon on Easter, have someone pop out of the ground across the street, stage it all set up, and then we could all just... So, okay. <laughs> jokes, jokes, jokes. Will you let me read something a second that I think is, gets us off on the right start uh, for what we're talking about today? Angie Bachman started going to the riverboat once a week on Friday afternoons. It was a a reward for making it through empty days, keeping the house clean, staying sane. She knew gambling could lead to trouble, so she set strict rules for herself. And she got good. At first, she could hardly make her money last an hour. Within six months, however, she had picked up enough tricks that she adjusted her rules to allow for two- or three-hour shifts, and she would still have cash in her pocket when she walked away. One afternoon, she sat down at the blackjack table with $80 in her purse and left with $530, enough to buy groceries, pay the phone bill, and put a bit in the rainy day fund. By then, the company that owned the casino, Harrah's Entertainment, was sending her coupons for free buffets. She would treat the family to dinner on Saturday nights. One day in 2000... Bachman went home from the casino with $6,000, enough to pay rent for two months and wipe out the credit card bills that were piling up by the front door. Another time, she walked away with $2,000. Sometimes she lost, but that was part of the game. Smart gamblers knew you had to go down to go up. Eventually, Harris gave her a line of credit so she wouldn't have to carry so much cash. Isn't that nice of them? In 2005, her husband's grandmother died and the family went back to her old hometown for the funeral. She went to the casino the night before the service to clear her head and and get mentally prepared for all the activity of the next day. Over the span of 12 hours, she lost $250,000. At the time, it was almost as if the scale of the loss didn't register. When she thought about it afterward, a quarter of a million dollars gone. It didn't seem real. On March 18, 2006, Angie Bachman flew to a casino at Harris's invitation. By then, her bank account was almost empty. When she tried to calculate how much she had lost over her lifetime, she put the figure at about $900,000. She had told Harris that she was already broke, but the man on the phone said to come anyway. They would give her a line of credit, he said. So nice. It felt like I couldn't say no, like when it, whatever... Like whenever they dangled the smallest temptation in front of me, my brain would shut off. I know that sounds like an excuse, but they always promised it would be different this time. And I knew no matter how much I fought against it, I was eventually going to give in. She brought the last of her money with her. She started playing $400 a hand, two hands at a time. If she could get up just a little bit, she told herself, just $100,000, she could quit and have something to give her kids Her husband joined her for a while, but at midnight, he went to bed. Around 2 a.m., the money she had come with was gone. A Harris employee gave her a promissory note to sign. Six times she signed for more cash for a total of $125,000. At about 6 in the morning, she hit a hot streak, and her piles of chips began to grow. A crowd gathered. She did a quick tally, not quite enough to pay off the notes she had signed, but if she kept playing smart, she could come out on top and then quit for good. She won five times in a row. She only needed to win 20000 more to pull ahead. Then the dealer hit 21. Then he hit 21 again. A 
few hands later, he hit it a third time. By 10 in the morning, all her chips were gone. She asked for more credit. The casino said no. She went to bed. It's all gone, she said. Her husband said, what do you mean? The money is gone, she said, all of it. At least we still have the house, he said. She didn't tell him that she'd taken a line of credit on the home months earlier and had gambled it away. The final, just I know it's a long, but the final chapter. Ten months after Bachman lost everything, Harris tried to collect from her bank. The promissory notes she signed bounced, and so Harris sued her, demanding Bachman pay her debts and an additional $375,000 in penalties, a civil punishment in effect for committing a crime. She countered sued, claiming that by extending her credit, free sweets and booze, Harris had preyed on someone they knew had no control over her habits. Her case went all the way to the state Supreme Court. Bachman's lawyer, echoing arguments from another case, said that she shouldn't be held culpable because she had been reacting automatically to temptations that Harris put in front of her. Once the offers started rolling in, he argued, once she walked into the casino, her habits took over, and it was impossible for her to control her behavior. The justices acting on behalf of society said Bachman was wrong. That's fascinating. Now, I sure hope none of you are somewhere on a trajectory like that. And maybe you can't even relate to it. And maybe you look at it and kind of go, she's crazy. How did she do that? How could anybody do that? I want you to think about, though, the fact that maybe you relate a little bit, that you feel sometimes, you ever feel this way? Like there's certain habits um, that when you get into that place, there's sort of a desperation to it for you. There's a they feel kind of, things can feel kind of locked in. Behaviors, patterns can feel like you just have, have never quite figured out and it feels like you never will. How do I get out of this loop? How do I get out of this set of behaviors or patterns or habits or habit in some area of my life? And so you, there's, a, there's an internal struggle between you know how sometimes financial charts or a home budget, you got like the the, uh, the budget versus the actual, you know, and, and internally, spiritually speaking, there's sort of the budget, there's the ideal, there's what you kind of can say you want your life to look like, but then there's the actual, the reality, and the two can be really far apart. That's what we're talking about today, that Angie Bachman knew that gambling was just bringing her down this path, but how come she couldn't? Do anything about it. And what, what can you do? What do you need when you have that kind of, you know, in that part of your life or when you're in a place? Maybe even today some of you are exactly in this kind of tr- sense of being trapped in some aspect of your life. What do you do? Well, I think there's a couple of standard responses to this. And you might, I don't want to make you put yourself in a category. I don't want everyone to feel categorized today. But just, to, just kind of test how you're feeling this morning with respect to these two ways of reacting to it. Are you more of a, um, are you more of a best, your best life now kind of person in these areas of your life? You know what I mean? Like, um, well, really what you just need to do in this struggle between the actual versus the ideal, you just have to have this, this you got to try this thing I tried. You got to read this book I read. You got to have this, 
this set of steps, and then you'll get it. You'll have your best life now. You can have it. You can kind of skip right out of that bad, struggling, spiraling place, and you can get it right now. Where are you more um, this morning as you think about this? Are you more over here in this place that just kind of says, what's the use? Or what's the big deal? Ho-hum. What's all the fuss about? You know, is it really that bad? Aren't we all just kind of imperfect folks anyway? What can we really expect? Why bother with all this, like, internal struggle and trying to figure it out? Where are you at? Are you your best, like, now kind of person? Or are you more like, ah, what's the big deal? We see the your best life now kind of thing all over the place. I think that's a little more evident. Maybe they're both pretty evident. But your best life now, you know, you see it on TV. You see it on commercials, right? If you ever go to a conference for your work, you see it in the people presenting a lot of times, right? They've got the answers. That's why they're asked to come talk. They've made it. They've skipped up out of the struggle between the ideal and the actual, and they can tell you what you need to do. And my DVD is in the back for a reduced rate today. And you can, if you buy today, you can get the book accompanying it. And if you uh, buy two, then you can get my new book that, I, that just came out that adds more of the exact same thing. It just gives me more money, right? So that's the presenter at the conference. You see it all over the place, really. Um, bookstores. Um, And what it ends up being is, you know, that book or that program or that set of steps that will get you that body that you want that, of course, will solve your problems and make you feel better. Uh, It'll fix and clean up your checkbook and your financial issues, which, of course, will make you feel better and feel like you have your life together. It will get that spouse for you um, so that you don't feel better and your whole life is fixed, right? It's kind of interesting, in the days, um, this was almost, um, yeah, about 500 years ago, when um, the young Martin Luther, who was a theologian, monk, really intelligent kind of churchman, uh, before the Reformation began, in his day, there was this, this um, common theology. It was pretty academic, but Martin Luther was well-versed in it. It was the, the reigning theology of the day. And it was basically a your best life now kind of theology. It was a certain set of things that you do, and if you do them, um, you'll make it, and you'll kind of have this confidence that you'll make it, and you'll have your best life now. But basically what they did, this is called scholastic theology. It was for the scholastic theologians of Martin Luther's day. And what they basically did was... um, They applied it to the Christian faith, this your best life now thing, and people do this in every era of the Christian church. They they do the same kind of thing. It just morphs with each generation. But their version basically said, when you enter into the Christian faith and you follow a couple basic things, then you should be in a kind of a place where you shouldn't have this feeling anymore where there's this deep inner struggle between what Christians call sin kind of hooked into you, but meanwhile you have kind of your good intentions that are kind of trying to draw, and the hooks feel like they're pulling you back. And that struggle won't exist anymore. And so what they did when they came across this passage that we read this morning was uh, 
they said, oh, well, that doesn't fit with our your best life now thing. Because it's the Apostle Paul's writing this, and he's saying, you heard how, how much fun James had trying to, to read all of this, right? Like, I do what I do, I don't want to do, I do it, but I do it, and if I don't, then I do. It's just, I mean, just back and forth, right? But it's this internal struggle, and they said, no, 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 no. Aha, we know what's going on. The Apostle Paul is, has suddenly slipped into his pre-Christian voice. Because this isn't what a Christian has going on inside their life, right? So it was kind of a convenient kind of move that they made with this passage that helped kind of fit their theology. And they said, no, 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 this, this is just something that happens before, but then once you become a Christian, then this is no longer the internal dialogue. Now, Martin Luther, as you know, he was kind of bold and courageous, and he had, he had a pretty healthy and fine-tuned crap detector. And so when he read what they were saying about this passage, he was, his crap detector was going off. And he's saying... There's no clues in here. There's nothing textually speaking that says he's switched voices. And not only that, but Martin Luther was going back, and he was, he was a, a really smart, smart guy, and he, he was no slouch, and he was reading who they were reading from 500 years earlier and going even further back and reading who those people were reading, um, Augustine, 500 years before that, and he was even going further back and basing his sense of how things work in your life spiritually, on what the Bible said and what Jesus said and what Jesus was all about. And basically he said, that's not how it works. Um, his point was basically that the scholastic theologians with their best life now kind of approach had done a shortcut to skip out of the inner struggle. And he says, that's not what Christianity offers. It doesn't offer this, do these couple steps and you'll just poop and you'll jump right out, get out of jail free card, don't pass go, whatever, however that monopoly thing works. And no, that's not the Christian life. That's not what's promised. And it wasn't so much that he's against shortcuts. It wasn't like, come on, people, you got to like feel miserable for a long time to really be a Christian. It wasn't like he was addicted to feeling miserable or in, in saying you can't shortcut out of that. It's just that something really amazing happened with Martin Luther that um, he caught on to some things and some things became clear to him that were nothing new. They were ancient. It came from just digging deeper into what was before and what had been lost. And he stumbled on some things that were just really, truly right and really were needed in his time and are needed every new era of the Christian church. And the things that he got right, that if you want to kind of crystallize some of it, is this, is that the Christian faith when it really comes down to it, has an extremely deep honesty about our mess. And that doesn't just poof, go away. That that continues. That being a Christian involves ongoing, deep honesty, raw grappling with your mess. But there's a second part, is that... that that he discovered that's essential to this is that you also have a radically satisfying encounter with God's grace amidst your mess. And Martin Luther saw that this was just not the dynamic of the conversation and he brought it to the surface a lot more. Um, there's basically no other philosophy that holds on to these two things in this deep kind of way that the Bible does. Holding them together in their raw depth, really looking in all its mess you know, at your sin, Re but also 
really believing that all of it and experiencing for all of your mess God's incredibly gracious love and forgiveness and acceptance and validation. And to hold these things up, it seems like, oh no, you've got to err either this way or that way, but to keep holding them up and have that to be the journey of the Christian life so that when you read Romans chapter 7, and there's this internal talk, and it feels like, man, this guy's miserable. He's got, like, like sin is just grabbing and seems to be winning. This struggle is going to be actually absolutely necessary to have over and over and over again in your life to really get the grace that's a part of the Christian faith. That, like, if you don't go there, if that, if that routine isn't just a part of life for you, then um, you're going to be you're going to kind of have a hazy sense of what it even means when someone talks really excitedly about God's grace or the gospel. Those are things that, in the inner struggle with your mess, it comes alive. It like bursts onto the onto the scene. So, so Martin Luther and the Apostle Paul, as he writes this in Romans chapter seven, they. They believe in knowing well the contours of your frailty. Do you, do you know really well the contours of your frailty? You want to spend some time in Lent going there? Now, you might say, no, that doesn't sound very good to me. <laughs> no thanks. Um, I'm pretty sure there's a church down the road that uh, you know, gives me five steps to have my best life now, and I'm going to go there. Well, you know, there's... There's a couple perspectives really on this, and, and that's one of them, is that you, know, that you would look at this, you would look at Romans chapter 7, and you would look at the message I'm giving right now, and you would say, uh, wow, okay, this person looks like a total failure, and um, that's unfortunate. I could probably tell them what they needed to do um, so that they didn't have to live such a miserable life. So that, that would be the your best life now response. The other response, you know that other thing that I said of just kind of viewing it as, ah, oh, what's the big deal? Um, that response would be probably, boy, this is someone who has to let it go and stop being alone, <laughs> right? This is someone who needs some hobbies and uh, maybe some, some alcohol, you know, and just needs something to kind of distract and get away from this, right? Um, and that's, quite frankly, what a lot of us are surrounded by, that philosophy that, you know, just don't go there. Just find something else to cover it over to distract. It's two different ways. Both of those responses to this is two different ways of doing the exact same thing. It's basically ensuring that there's an atrophy of your inner life. Because you don't go there. You have reasons, they make sense to you, and you just don't go there. Um, and here's the interesting thing. You know how I, I kind of joke like that they need some alcohol? That's one of the things, that's one of the answers. Things that kind of numb us spiritually and distract and you learn over time, like you maybe have some things in your life that it's like, oh, this is bothering too much. I'm going to go do this other thing over here. Some, some physical thing, a food thing, an alcohol thing, a, a drug thing, a, a maybe workaholic kind of behavior. It's a hundred different things you could do that with. But basically it's like, ah, too much. I need this over here. I'm going to do this. It's going to... And we know over time, we know that that choice that you just made is usually they start to be kind of habitualized. And they don't actually answer the, the turmoil, the inner thing over here, right? And you st- over time, you just say, that doesn't, I mean, it feels like, oh, I've got to go do this now because this is bothering me. That doesn't actually answer it. You know this. 
And you can actually, neuroscientists can prove it because the part of your brain that has that kind of inner turmoil emotional thing is one part, and then they can watch the brain light up over here when you do the pleasure part for some other distracting thing, and they're two different parts of the brain. It's just a distraction. So this thing you're going to, and you know it doesn't because maybe you're experience, you've kind of thought it out, but scientifically you can prove it doesn't answer that. It doesn't get there. In a sense, it's a waste of time. It doesn't help. But it's a, it's a habit that keeps you from going to the inner life. The inner life craves something. You've got deep, real, good spiritual cravings. So you develop some habit over here, and it kind of mismatches. And in fact, it's impossible to satisfy. In 2008, uh, I kind of, this began to apply in my life. Um, when doing City Life Church and being about a year into it, it was really hard work, and it was hard emotionally to go through. Um, that, was sort of, that was sort of that thing over there that I was like, ah! And so um, in the season of Lent, 2008, there's a prayer that I wrote, and then I put on a card, and I looked at it. Every time I wanted to kind of numb and paper over, and the drug of choice was you know, a drink or two or three at night when I wanted to leave it alone and let it go. So this is, these are some parts of the, this prayer, just to give you a sense of applying this and what we might do, what you might do this season. This is what I said in this prayer. I drink each night because I am too weak to handle this on my own. My drinking numbs me to the difficulty which keeps me safely distant from prayer. This Lent, I return to you with this burden. Remove all worry of failure, anxiety of leadership, self-focus on performance, and replace all of it with your gracious love. Replace all of it with your gracious love. Um... This Lent, consider um, letting the season lead you into habits that nurture the inner life. Consider what might need to be dislodged, um, broken up a little bit, halted, and kind of brought to the surface. Because it's something that's over here, that kind of papering over stuff. A lot of times... If you come from a Catholic tradition, you hear people talk about, I'm going to give up chocolate for Lent, I'm going to give up this for Lent, I'm going to do that for Lent. And it can become kind of re- religious, like I'm doing this to do God a favor, almost, like God will be happy if I do this. And I, I want you to maybe kind of get out of that idea, but think of that same concept, but having this spiritual meaning, the meaning of saying, I'm going to deal with this area over here and kind of step back and look at it. So it may involve giving up chocolate. That may be your papering over thing, right? It may be caffeine. It may be alcohol. It may be workaholic behavior. It may be the internet at night. It may be your phone, you know, pretty much all the time. It could be a number of things over here, right? Um, But imagine, not just, oh, God's going to be happy if I give this up. But no, this is going to be some movement to examine the inner life. And so this prayer leads us off in Lent. It's on the card. The prayer of delight Our mighty God, I am so weak when it comes to the change I need to make. I spend life on fast delights. It's the stuff over here. 
I approach you as if you're the same and perhaps I can quickly attain some of you as well. You're not. I can't. And I can't seem to dislodge what needs to move in order to make room for you. Can you help me? This is very hard for me to admit. Help me this Lent to remember how sweet it is to delight solely in you. Um, just, uh, I need to kind of cut to the end, so I'm just looking here. Um, it's amazing how things become like, I don't need to say that, I don't need to say that, I don't need to say that. Um, right, Adam? <laughs> um, I do want to say this. If you look at this passage, how can, how can you continue to go to the inner struggle? It seems depressing. It seems like, why would I want to do that? Oh my gosh, that sounds miserable. It sounds like a terrible way to spend the next 40 days. But look, and then we're only dealing with the part of this letter. If we read, added on, so there's an emphasis today, but if we added on, it would be too long of a sermon. But then you, you get a kind of a new focus of like the triumph and victory in Christ. But you already hint at how can the Apostle Paul, how can Martin Luther, how can they go to this inner struggle that can seem so depressing and miserable? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the Apostle Paul knows that in this inner struggle, that's where it all goes. It's like a, it's like a new habit that I go into the inner struggle that is the source of all this stuff over here that's actually kind of damaging and annoying stuff in my life. It all, if I trace it down, it comes down to this inner struggle that maybe it hasn't been dealt with enough. And um, if you get used to, in that inner struggle of your frailty and brokenness, you get used to the fact, and God will answer you if you go there, if you get used to him answering you with grace where you could say, God has delivered me, in Jesus Christ. The struggle's still happening, but I go about that struggle with this confidence that out the end of it, always this, relief, this release valve kind of catches and the pressure's let off, and I know that it's all okay, and I'm okay to keep struggling, to keep wrestling. That's the gospel of grace. Um, that is, if you're feeling like we're just a bunch of miserable people who like to spend Lent sad, no, no, no. The point is engagement with grace. It's, to go into your inner life is to go into grace engagement. Will you go there this Lent? You know? You need it. If you look at your life and do sort of like a cross-section cut, you'd see it. Um, let me do that, and then I'll pray. Let me read one thing about this Angie Bachman, the gambler, that maybe was her cross-section that needed to just be kind of dealt with, but gambling was the false papering over. In 2000, Angie Bachman's parents, both longtime smokers, started showing signs of lung disease, she began flying to Tennessee to see them every other week, buying groceries and helping to cook dinner. When she came back home to her husband and daughters, the stretches seemed even lonelier now. It's loneliness going on. Sometimes the house was empty all day long. If it, it was as if in her absence her friends had forgotten to invite her to things and her family had figured out how to get by on their own. Bachman was worried about her parents, upset that her husband seemed more interested in his work than her anxieties, and resentful, man, talk about a list of things going on in her inner life, resentful 
of her kids who didn't realize she needed them now after all the sacrifices she had met, made while they were growing up. But whenever she hit the casino, the tensions would float away. She didn't, you know, she didn't need the casino. She needed something else. She needed to go into that inner life and find some grace for the resentment, for the loneliness, for the bitterness. And we need that too. Let's do that this, this season together. Let's pray. Gracious God, help us. Whether we feel totally willing to, to turn a new leaf of inner life during Lent or whether we feel very resistant, um, wherever we are, will you, will you meet us and help us? Because every single one of us needs help because our lives are kind of hardwired the wrong way. Much of it our own doing. But we need help getting out of it. We can't ourselves. And will you meet us in our inner struggle with your grace? In Jesus' name, amen.